Hello, welcome to the Exploring Inequalities podcast series. My name's Oliver Patel, and I'm Research Assistant for UCL Grand Challenges. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the concept of opportunity and how it relates to inequality. Some people have opportunities in life and some people don't. Why is that and why does it matter? To discuss these issues, I'm joined by Dr. Zubaydah Haq, who's Deputy Director of the Ronnie Mead Trust. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, Ollie. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you do and your organisation? Well, the Runnymede Trust is a national leading race equality think tank. And what we do is we undertake research and we try to influence policy in Parliament in relation to improving the outcomes for black and ethnic minority and white working class groups in this country. How would you assess the state of inequality in UK society today? I think the situation is this. From the moment that you are born in this country, who your family is, how much income they have, where you're born, what school you go to, what extracurricular activities there are around you and that you can afford to access, all of those things heavily influence the outcomes in your life and they influence your health, what qualifications you get, your employment levels and they even influence whether you'll be able to buy a house or not. And I think that's why we need to talk about inequality and opportunity because in this country it's not an even level playing field. Given that we have things like universal healthcare, universal education, which supposedly everyone can access, why is it that where you come from and what the situation you're born into can determine your health and education to such an extent when these services are universal and free for the whole public? They're only universal from the context of supply. They're not universal in the context of what your need is, whether you can access that service, whether you can afford the service. And it's not universal in terms of how it's presented. Schools are a very good example where everybody is supposed to have access to education. But we know that there are highly different kinds of schools in this country. We have state schools, and even within the context of state schools, we have grammar schools, we have private schools, and even within the context of private schools, that's highly varied. And all of that is influenced by how much income you have, where you live, and even within school, it's highly segregated. So even within school, it's not that you all have the same education because the moment a child enters school, what sets they are put into, how their education is tiered, how their teacher perceives them, whether they're white working class boys or black boys, all of that influences your access, if you like, to education. Looking at state schools is interesting because the majority of the population is state educated, but you're saying there's still massive inequalities within state schools. So how, how do they arise given that state schools are free? Well, if we just take the bog standard comprehensive school, we know, for instance, at Runnymede Trust that there is an enormous difference from the way black and ethnic minority children, and in particular, black boys, white working class boys and Gypsy Roma and Irish traveller boys, for instance, experience school compared to their white counterparts. And we know that because of, for instance, how they are tiered in sets. And actually, 
even there there's gender issues. We know, for instance, research shows that black girls are more likely to be put into lower maths sets regardless of their economic background. We know that black boys are more likely to be excluded regardless of what state schools they go to. So within schools, what you have is also teachers' perceptions of children as well. You know, we always talk about class in education, but we assume that class is all about income, but actually class is also about middle-class perceptions of working-class children as well. And that's how, slowly but surely, those differences start coming through the system and outcomes change for different groups of children. So do you think that perceptions which teachers or people in authority have of their students are so powerful that they can determine the opportunities which those students have to succeed in life and in their education? It's huge, but we shouldn't for one minute think that actually attitudes Mm -hmm. will break all the social class barriers. And I don't want to go off track here, but teachers' attitudes do profoundly influence a child's perception of not only their own ability, but how they perceive themselves and how others perceive themselves. I mean, we, we all know that, you know, you have a terrible history teacher, it puts you off history for life. But actually, if your teacher also thinks that as a white working class boy, or as a black boy, you're not likely to do very well, you're not likely to go past secondary school, that your behaviour is constantly troublesome, then not only do others perceive you that way, but you internalise that behaviour and start playing up to that behaviour as well. So yes, it does make an enormous difference. So thinking about the healthcare system and the health of people, do you think that given that we have the NHS and a universal healthcare, does everyone have equal opportunity to be as healthy as they can be. I think that in an ideal world, that should be what should be happening in practice. But of course, that doesn't happen. And we know that. We know, for instance, that where you live has a profound impact on your health and well-being. We know that your life chances even are reduced. I mean, since I think between 2011 and 2016, the age at which women die, their mortality age, has reduced in some parts of the country by 20%. So if you're from a poorer area, you're much more likely to die earlier than if you're from a richer area. And in some parts of the country, like if you compare some parts of Glasgow with, you know, for instance, Knightsbridge in London, we're talking about mortality disparities around 20 years where a woman in Glasgow may die at the age of 70 whereas an average woman in Knightsbridge dies at the age of 90. And, and, and what's actually happening in their lives they live in a in the same country sometimes they actually live quite close to each other in different boroughs of the same city what factors are giving rise to such differences in life expectancy and healthy life expectancy? Well I think Molly this goes back to the absolute crux of inequality and the nature of inequality which is you know it's not just about what you eat and it's not just about how much you smoke and whether you take drugs or not I I think if you talk to a conservative minister arguably that's what they would say but actually we know that health is influenced by so many other 
factors, like the type of house that you live in and whether it's well insulated and whether it has damp and whether there's overcrowding. We know that the type of job or the hours that you work influences your health. If you're working all hours around the clock and you're not getting any rest, then that influences your health. We know that even education influences your health in terms of the stress of education, how much education costs. It's all interconnected. So I think in that sense, that's why people who are on less income are also more likely to have health problems. So thinking about the concept of opportunity, if we think of opportunity as individuals are able to choose a set of options and pursue a path which best suits them. So we think about a concept of agency and autonomy. Mm. Can you explain um, why the levels of autonomy or agency which people have might differ? Well, this goes back to that social mobility argument, which is, you know, everybody has their own autonomy and agency. And if they just learn to play the rules of the game, then they will do fine. We hear it very often in relation to Oxbridge, you know, all you need to do is learn the rules of the game. But what we know, Ollie, is it doesn't matter if you learn the rules of the game, if there's an uneven playing field, no matter how many opportunities there are, your background will highly influence whether you're able to access those opportunities. You know, for instance, we know that in London, there's lots of extracurricular activities that you can do. We know that extracurricular activities make an enormous difference to a child's ability to access good universities because if you can go to martial arts classes and you can do piano and uh, very expensive very expensive activities yeah very expensive (laughs) you know if in principle all of those things are available and in principle schools should have those things but of course your agency and your autonomy is highly influenced by whether you can afford those things, whether your parents can even drive you to those things. Because if your parents are working all hours and they have and they are juggling several jobs, they don't have time to take you to those things. Those things are considered huge luxuries. So it goes back to once again that availability of choice doesn't actually mean that choice is available for everyone. How can you level the playing field? What what can policymakers do to level the playing field in this sense? They make those choices real choices. And I think that's what the issue is here. It goes back to what I was saying about supply and availability, that just because those things are out there, it doesn't mean that people on lower socioeconomic incomes, it doesn't mean that particular ethnic minority groups, it doesn't mean that even women can access those opportunities. So I think where policymakers come in is they have to think about how can I improve access to those services? What you have to think about is what are the constraints for those groups? You have to even identify this. I mean, I don't want to get too nerdy about this, but this is also a data issue, which Mm -hmm. is unless you look for gaps in people accessing services, unless you ask those questions from the very beginning, and asking those questions means that you have to collect the data, you know, who's accessing what and why not sort of thing, then you can't identify the problem. And I guess a typical counter-argument to these points is that if I can afford it, why shouldn't I pay 
for the best opportunities and the best activities for my children or as an individual for the best things to keep me healthy. So would you advocate also taking away from those who have more or it's about giving more access to those who have less? I don't think we should see it as a zero-sum situation where in order for people in lower incomes to have more, we need to take more away from those who are better off. I think all people are asking for is a level playing field. And a level playing field simply means that you need to improve the access for those at the bottom. It doesn't mean you have to tinker with those at the top. That doesn't mean that opportunities for those at the top won't change. If we go back to an example in education, for instance, Oxbridge is a classic example where private school students are much more likely to get into Oxbridge. I think seven schools get about half of the places in Oxbridge sort of in, in this country. It, it's not that, that um, dramatic, but it, it's extremely high. Now, obviously, if you're going to level the playing field, it means that those seven private schools can't get as many places as they did before. In that sense, there will be some give and take. But I think, generally speaking, it's about making the opportunities and making the choices for those at the bottom much more real, much more achievable. And one final question. Is there an opportunity cost to society at large when so many people aren't able to fulfil what could be their true potential? Absolutely. It's extraordinary that society still functions. I mean, a good example is at the moment, the way the economy is structured, it doesn't benefit women. Women earn less, own less. They do a disproportionate amount of domestic work and a disproportionate amount of childcare. And yet, if women, for instance, didn't look after children, if they didn't do the caring responsibilities of looking after the elderly and so on, the economy wouldn't function. The difference is, Ollie, at the moment, the economy doesn't reward them for that. And it's the same with a lot of ethnic minority groups, which is, you know, a lot of ethnic minority groups were told 30 years ago that if you work hard enough, if you get the degrees, it will pay off in the labour market. But that's not how it works. We know that some ethnic minority groups are much more likely to get degrees and higher degrees compared to their white counterparts. But as soon as they enter the labour market, it becomes a social mobility broken promise. But those broken promises are for women, disabled groups, working class people. I mean, there are broken promises everywhere. And I think we have to just ask ourselves the question, how long do we think that's going to last? Dr. Zabeda Hack, thank you very much for speaking to me. It's been great to talk and fascinating to hear your insights. Thank you very much, Ali. The next guest on today's episode is Roxana Khanum. She's a disability advocate. Thank you very much for joining me today, Roxana. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and the, the work that you do? So I am blind, mostly. So I'm registered blind. I have a severe visual impairment, which impacts various areas of my life. But from a young age, I've always been interested in disability rights and disability advocating for people's rights who are disabled. So, for example, from about five years ago, I joined a forum for visually impaired young people. I think visually impaired people who are young are misunderstood and quite a minority within the whole blind persons category. 
I've also done lots of projects for the benefit of disabled people. So, for example, I work with a charity called AbilityNet who are trying to make the internet and technology more accessible for everyone, not just disabled people. So I'm one of their testers and they call upon me to test certain websites, working with quite big companies to try to make the internet and technology more accessible. That's something I really take pride in because I think technology for disabled people in general is the future for us so it should be available and accessible for everyone again I've had lots of experience in terms of being an advocate for disabled people especially for people who are blind or visually impaired yes certainly uh, on the kind of younger spectrum at the moment Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. on this episode we're discussing opportunity so it's quite a broad concept and what does the concept of opportunity mean to you as a disabled person and someone who is advocating for rights for disabled people So opportunity at the moment feels like sometimes having to take an extra step compared to my peers. I feel like instead of just climbing one step into education or one step into employment or however many steps you might take as an individual who's not disabled, I feel like people who with disabilities have to take one, two, ten, a hundred more steps than the average person. That's something that I'm really passionate about, trying to close the gap between how people with non-disabilities are able to access those type of opportunities and people with disabilities are able to access those opportunities. So opportunity to me, it means the same thing as to everyone else. But then when I consider my disability, I feel like there's a few more hurdles and some more obstacles to overcome. Mm -hmm. The ideal is to kind of close that gap, level the playing field, Mm -hmm. if you like. So, So these extra hurdles, which you say people face, do these hurdles in reality mean that disabled people have fewer opportunities in things like education and in in the workplace? They have access to less opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference because everyone has lots of opportunities, but if you can't access them, then a few more doors are closed for you. So I feel like that's a really important factor when considering equalising the playing field or the level that we work on to try to close the gap, if you will. If we think from a policy perspective now, would you be able to point to some examples where government has intervened and has closed some gaps or levelled the playing field to a certain extent? Are there success stories out there of the situation being made better in recent years? Yes, I think, for example, the Disability Confidence Scheme is a really positive example that the government has taken steps to try to get disabled people into work. And Mm -hmm. I think this is a really positive step in the right direction. Sometimes I feel like the impact may not be as great as government thinks or that a lot of people think just because you stamp a disability confident logo on your website doesn't necessarily mean that your recruitment process is accessible or disability confident. Can you just explain what this scheme is and how maybe the the theory of it then differentiates from the practice in the real world? So the disability confidence scheme is designed to enable people who are disabled easier access into employment. So for example, if there's a three-step recruitment process into a position, into a role, sometimes you can bypass some of those recruitment processes. If, for example, you have a written application and then assessment and then an interview, the disability confidence scheme ideally is supposed to help you bypass bypass some of those hurdles as part of the recruitment process and gain access into employment easier. So at least you have a shot at interview stage. However, I found that with my experience with disabled people, even if they do declare that they are disabled, sometimes it's extremely difficult to qualify, if you like, because the the company have a discretion as to how they 
implement the scheme. So it's two ticks. The first tick that you are disabled and the second tick is that you meet the specifications. Now, if the specifications are really complicated or really intricate, then people might not meet them. So you're looking at an exceptional category of people and then you have to think how many of those people are disabled and then how do they have access to the same opportunity. In a way, you're looking at this very specific pool of individuals in terms of employment and recruitment and that's not just to give you an opportunity at employment that's just for an interview for an employee role Mm -hmm. so I feel like although the scheme has gone a long way to help I think that some organizations just put the scheme on their kind of website just to show that they are disability confident or to have their name on the list as one of those employers that are confident in disability but in practice their hurdles are just as complicated to get to when it comes to employment. It's an interesting idea that you have this legislation Mm. and these policies but then the actual implementation or the enforcement of them often it doesn't achieve the desired result do you think that's noticeable in other areas as well is that a trend you can see i think definitely a trend if i just talk about education for one moment education is an area where some categories of disabled people are advised to go into mainstream education when you're younger or specialist education where you have a a school or facility specially designed for disabled people and i have a real thing against these kind of institutions because i feel like for people with very complex needs perhaps it may be advantageous to have them in those type of settings but for people for example who are visually impaired Mm -hmm. I don't think that they need to be excluded from society and go to this specialist school specially designed for visually impaired people it doesn't help them integrate into society later on in life and it's very frustrating to see young visually impaired adults not able to cope with real life experiences because they've not had them. They've been sheltered and kept in a bubble in this safe school. For example, if you're expecting all your material to be in Braille, when you go to university, most likely, everything won't be in place. You'll have to chase tutors for university. You'll have to chase your manager at employment level. So there are lots of life lessons that people who are Mm -hmm. disabled don't gain from these specialist schools, which I don't think is necessary for everyone all disabled people and it's unfortunate to say things like bullying do happen mm-hmm. and these are children bullying children and it's in a way it's almost natural because you see someone different to you and you're not sure how to interact with them or to engage with them so the first instinct is fear and what fear produces is anger etc so that can quickly turn into bullying but it's about how you respond to that bullying or harassment or how you respond to the ignorance that you might face in children and I think that's really important it really builds your resilience your ability to deal with different situations and how tough you are how strong you are as a person how confident you are in your own abilities going to a mainstream school I think has so many advantages yes it's very difficult and challenging in terms of adjustments you might have to chase teachers parents will have to get involved and I think that's one thing that's contributing to these factors parents will send their children to these specialist schools hoping that it will you know that all their adjustments will be catered to which they are but when they go into real life all their adjustments won't be catered to what do they do then they struggle at university to cope and for example social settings there's certain things that you might if you're visually impaired you might not know how you know which way to give eye contact or even to try to pretend to give eye contact to show that you're listening to someone those type of skills aren't learned in a school that is specially designed for the visually impaired everyone is just catered for and their disabilities are 
just accepted as they are, which they should be, absolutely. But there are certain social standards that we still live by. And it's just easier as an adult when you do mm-hmm. go into the higher education market or to the employment market to pick up on, you know, these mannerisms that we have in the non-visual world. And this is the thing is you're going from a place where you're used to no vision or low vision. And then you walk into this world where everyone can see you how do you interact with those Mm. kind of people so how if we're saying that more disabled people more visually impaired people should go to mainstream education because it builds better resilience and it gives them a better platform to transition into adulthood Mm. how can mainstream education better serve those disabled people i think that's a really important question to ask one thing that a lot of parents will be conscious of when making a decision whether to make send their child to a mainstream school or to a specialist school because the default option will be a mainstream school has the mainstream school got these facilities that my child can access the curriculum and unfortunately a lot of the time it won't and there's a shortfall which means that your child is then suffering and then not reaching their potential in terms of education so in terms of policies we need to make sure that we have policies in place that will enable children of all kind of disabilities to be able to access the curriculum you need to have these action plans in place very early on as early as possible we need to be thinking about diagnosis as soon as possible and then an action plan to help them access the curriculum this will enable the child to then gain the most potential from it and if we apply a similar line of thinking but to the workplace Mm. what policies or interventions can be implemented both by government and business to make workplaces more accessible and a place where disabled people can thrive at work some of the larger companies are starting to get the message in terms of disabled employment and employing disabled people some of the larger companies have made specialist adjustments and they understand that a diverse workforce represents society better which will then help their company grow and further their interests i think it's the smaller companies that we need to really be looking at Mm. the smaller companies really don't have an awareness of disability or the funding that's available for disabled employees and i think the government really needs to look at how they can promote that to smaller employers and organisations. We need to push the kind of campaign for disability confidence more proactively, make it a robust process to make sure the companies are following through and they're not indirectly discriminating in any way. But I think it's more awareness about the funding that's available and the advantages to employing disabled people for smaller companies. I just wanted to pick up on what you said earlier about your involvement with, um, was it AbilityNet? Yes. So can you talk a bit about how, if we think about the concept of opportunity, how can the relationship between technology, especially digital technologies, the internet, smartphones, Hmm. hinder or enhance the opportunities which disabled people have? Disability, whatever form it is, whether it's employees or whether it's customers, you know, it's they're a part of society. And I think larger companies are beginning to see that they are a valuable asset. But whereas when it comes to smaller organisations and their websites and their technology, we need improvement there as well. So there's this running theme where, you know, smaller companies, organisations don't necessarily they aren't necessarily aware with the funding that's available or the talent that's available and the customer network that's available when engaging disabled people.
So when you're just, I'm just assuming here because you had a big company. So if you're on Facebook or Google or these kind of like major websites, Amazon mm. is relatively accessible. But then you can go on other websites of smaller organizations and all of a sudden it's just not accessible. Is that what's happening? Yes, absolutely. So for example, the .gov website and all its kind of related pages. The is government very, website. Yeah, the yeah. government website, mm-hmm. sorry, mm-hmm. is relatively accessible and it's very simple to use and it's consistent. This is the main thing that it's it's got the same layout it's got the same ability for screen reader software so it's consistently effective and accessible in terms of relaying the information to the user whereas some organizations some parts of the website are accessible some when you go to do a form or something sometimes they're not always accessible mm-hmm. so you think nhs websites some so of them the nhs choices website i think is quite accessible but some individual pharmacy websites Mm. or this is the kind of the offshoots which central government necessarily can't control Mm. all these websites they have control of like the main nhs website the government websites and other recruitment websites which are really easy to access but for example places like heathrow have been really good in trying to make their website more accessible microsoft is a very big organization that are trying to make everything more accessible so there are lots of places that are accessible but for example loads of places that where there are lots of graphics or that don't allow screen reader technology mm-hmm. or that have lots of text boxes in weird places these pose very real challenges and everyday challenges to people who are visually impaired for example we talk about social networking instagram mm-hmm. Well, it's more kind of the nature of Instagram is not necessarily very accessible. How could Instagram be more accessible? Or Snapchat, should I say. Snapchat is one that I've had real life experience with. Mm. And for example, their messaging service is not screen reader friendly. For example, the captions that you see, it's just very difficult to navigate and to use. Whereas Twitter, and I think a lot of visually impaired people quite like Twitter Mm -hmm. because it's completely accessible. There's no parts of the screen that won't be read to you. And now you can add audio description to your photos so if you put a photo up on twitter then you can add a caption and then that means that your screen reader software will read you the caption so you can put something like person drinking or something like that as a caption so do you think that increased accessibility online is a key part of tackling inequalities which disabled people face do you think it's a an important part of the picture I think it is an important part of the picture, but we always have a person at the end of that process. So whether you're looking at recruitment, for example, you can fill in an application form, fine, and it can be accessible, but it will be a person on the other end reviewing that for you and then deciding whether they want to take your disability as a negative or a positive, whether they want to kind of utilise your abilities that you've gained from being disabled, if you like. So I think it's part of the mission to make technology and internet accessible, but part of it is making people more aware and helping them tap into that talent and network of people. So do you think there's a lot of untapped talent and people whose talents and skills are not being utilised because of how other people might perceive them? Yes, I think that's very true. A lot of the time, there's so much talent out there and there's a customer base out there that if your website is not accessible that you're losing out on. So I think it's a very real loss to the company or to the organisation if they can't see that disabled people are potential employees that can bring real value into their organisations or potential customers that can bring money into their organisations. Just one final question. Can you speak a bit about intersectionality and disability? So 
the different experiences of disabled women compared to men or disabled people of colour compared to white people? There was a really interesting report, actually, by Fahmida Rahman, who was part of Resolution Foundation, which I found really fascinating. And she looks at the multidimensional disadvantages that people of certain categories face. And I think that's really important. For example, if you're a woman who's disabled, the opportunities available to you may be less compared to a white male who is disabled. And one thing I wanted to say is about age when it comes to visual impairment specifically and some disabilities as well is that me personally, I find it quite difficult growing up visually impaired because a lot of people aren't used to a young person who is blind or visually impaired. You know, when you think of sight loss, you think as you grow older, you lose your vision. So a lot of the services, leisure activities, charities, they're targeted towards older people Mm -hmm. who have lost vision, who used to be able to see, who are now aren't unable to see so for example counselling sessions and (laughs) I've been to quite a few old plays because that's what all that was available Mm. things like that and Tate Modern for example is a really good example because they run really good tactile tours but the problem is when you're younger you're not necessarily going to appreciate art in the same way as to when you're older if you were older and you were able to see art then you have a different perspective to when you have then become visually impaired and now are older and you can think back I used to be able to Mm, see this mm. this is a good appreciation of art but when you're (laughs) when organisations charities schools are trying to send a group of teenagers to see Tate Modern it's a different experience because being visually impaired or blind your exposure to art is different for young disabled people young visually impaired people they just don't put on as many options that that you'd want to get involved in there's just not that much on offer definitely agree with that and for example leisure activities that you would see theatres and concerts and things like that especially the theatre the very old plays so there's a a potential gap in the market there for someone someone to fill Roxana thank you so much for talking to me it's been really amazing to get your insights thank you so much thank you